0: Well, it's my uh, privilege this morning to introduce a little bit of a mini-series for you. And uh, Tim is going to be completing the other two parts of it. So it's a three-part series on prayer. And uh, Tim is going to be speaking next week and the week after on that great prayer that finishes Ephesians chapter 3. And following that, uh, the prayer in Romans 15, 5 to 7. What I'd like, to think, like you to think with me about as we come this morning to Philippians chapter 1 and the prayer that Paul prays for the Philippians in the first half of that chapter is how prayer works in your life. So I want you to think about your daily routine and your weekly routine and, and the place that you've probably tried to find or you, you, maybe you've really successfully found for prayer in your daily and weekly routine. Um, I'm going to hint at mine not so that you all know about my private life, but so that you can begin to imagine what it is that you do. So uh, Eric Clapton put out an album, an unplugged album at one stage. Uh, It's probably 20 years ago now. And one of the blues songs, the traditional old blues songs that he had on that album was, um, how would it go? Woke up this morning, I feel around for my shoes. I thought about singing this. (laughs) (laughs) You know about that, babe? I had them all walking blues. I kind of relate to that song because for a good part of the year here in Victoria, when I wake up in the morning, it is at a time when you have to feel around for your shoes in pitch darkness, and I suffer the additional impediment that my Ugg boots are jet black, and so I totally have to remember their position because I'm not going to find them by sight at all. It's just absolutely dark. So I get up, I find my jet black Ugg boots, I go and make myself look a bit human, and then in the remaining little slot of time before all the kids' iPads start going off, that's when I have to read my Bible and pray. Now, maybe you're a kind of an evening prayer, or maybe uh, you've got a little bit of quiet time in the middle of the day somehow. Uh, If you have young children, that morning time slot tends to not be there at all because they beat you up in the morning, in one or another sense. And... I don't know, if you're, if you're a bit of a night owl, maybe it's that last slide in the evening that, that works for you because you, you've still got some life and uh, it actually works to tune you down and you communicate with God there at the end. Uh, I think Naomi and I would like to do that more often. Um, it's been rich when we've done it. So, your prayer routine. I want you to think about how that sort of functions for you and whether you think it's working for you. Do you feel like you... Know how to pray well. Do you feel, do you feel effective at prayer? Um, I wonder how many of us, if we were to be honest, would say, oh, you know, I'm not really proud of my prayer life. I'm not really proud of how well I pray or how long I pray. or I'm not sure I'm doing it right, really. I'm not totally positive I'm doing it right. Uh, sometimes it's rich and meaningful and sometimes it's routine and sometimes it simply doesn't happen. If you're like me, shutting your eyelids again before about 9 o'clock in the morning is generally not a good idea. So just physical fatigue, the madness of routine, the demands of family, all of those things, I think, tend to make prayer a challenge at a practical level. We have our ideals of what we think would be good to do and then we have what we actually do. Um, Often they're a fair way apart. Well, if it was just to talk to you about what I think I know about prayer, I probably would ask Tim to get somebody else, but I'm encouraged that we can come to Scripture and all learn something together about prayer, and, and it's not our personal expertise that we're bringing, but uh, we're all coming before the bar of the Word of God, and, and to learn from the Word of God, and so I find that encouraging. So we're going to talk about Philippians chapter 1, and uh, a block of verses early there, and uh, I might just grab my Bible, which I've forgotten, and then I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about the Philippians. <laughs> this point, which will work as I move, is that the Philippians are not the Philippines. <laughs> Paul never wrote a letter to the Philippines. All right, so the verses we're going to look at are Philippians chapter 1. I'll read from the very start, and it's just up to verse 11. So have a read with me if you can. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there's a couple of things that we're able to learn from that passage. Uh, And so my focuses are going to be uh, what Paul prays for and the way that he prays, but in reverse order. How he prays first and then for what does he pray? So you probably know where Philippi is, so this is going to come up in a slide or two here, Joe. So it's at the top of the Aegean Sea, it would be in Greece today, And so just mentally zoom in on there. If you can see the Aegean in the centre between Greece and what is now Turkey, Philippi is up at the very top there. It actually gets its name from Philip of Macedon. Okay, trivia question time. Who knows who Philip of Macedon is? I heard a voice. He did have a famous son, a famous son. Alexander. Alexander the Great. Okay, so Philip of Macedon, good one, Rosemary. Philip of Macedon was father of Alexander the Great, and so a bit like Alexander, soon formed the habit of naming every second city that he founded after himself. <laughs> Humble guy. So that's why there's Alexandria's all over the ancient world, because he everywhere he went he went. Oh, I think I'll call this place Alexandria. <laughs> so his dad sort of started the game with uh, Philippi. And in Paul's day, Philippi was a fairly privileged sort of place. It wasn't the biggest or even the administrative centre in that region, but uh, I understand it was a colony for retired um, soldiers from the Roman army. And so it had the status of being a Roman colony, and therefore its citizens were Roman citizens. Roman citizenship still really counted for something in that day. You might remember that in the Book of Acts, Paul encounters a a centurion, I think it was, from memory, who said, you know, I had to pay a high sum for my citizenship. And Paul says, yeah, but I was born a citizen. So it still made a difference in that era to be a Roman citizen. It gave you privileges. Now, the uh, part of the story in Acts that takes place in Philippi, the biggest chunk, is in Paul's second missionary journey, which is shown on the route there, um, where they left from Antioch and went back through Turkey, what's well, now Turkey. And then uh, very early in Acts chapter 16, uh, remember Paul and the other apostles had plans to actually go to Bithynia, which is the northern coast of Turkey there on the Black Sea, and it says the Holy Spirit prevented them from doing so. One of the million-dollar questions in the Bible is just by what means the Holy Spirit present- prevented them from taking well, you know, kind of a right turn to northern Turkey. But they ended up at the seaport of Troas, the name for Troy, and uh, then when Paul had a vision saying, you know, the Macedonian man, come over and help us, they got on a ship and crossed the sea and went to um, places like Philippi. Philippi was the first real serious stop over there in the European mainland. And so that was where Paul and uh, the other apostles, uh, we know Silas is there, we know Timothy is there, and interestingly... In the book of Acts, that's the first section where we kicks in, which means Luke, as the author, is hinting that he's now present in the story for the first time. So Philippi is the first place where Luke gets involved in the church's story in in his account in Acts. Uh, First person that was converted to Christ in Philippi? Trivia question? Yeah, be bold. Lydia, Lydia, that's right. So a, a businesswoman... Uh, trading in purple and she was heading up a prayer group outside the city on a riverbank which probably suggests there was no synagogue no official place for prayer for fearers of god um, but was holding an informal meeting on the riverbank and so she and her household and maybe through her influence a whole bunch of people there are converted to christ and become the seat of that church okay last trivia question sorry i can't resist i'm a bit of a lecturer at heart (laughs) What's the other main thing that happened in Philippi, in that story in Acts 16? A setback for the apostles, or so it seemed. Yeah, okay, so they were imprisoned. Um, It's because Paul cast the demon out of uh, a girl who predicted the future, and her owners were furious, had them thrown into prison. And you remember that Paul and Silas are kind of famous for how well they dealt with a bad flogging and then imprisonment, that they're singing songs into the middle of the night there in prison. Then comes the earthquake and the conversion of the jailer, and and it's quite a dramatic little chapter. I think we're going to see some continuities in the apostolic attitude, in Paul's attitude between that story and here, because the whole tone of the book of Philippians has this joyful spirit about it. Uh, You really get the feeling that Paul is someone who has discovered how to transcend circumstances through his relationship with God or his relationship with Christ and is able to overcome immediate difficulties. Uh, If you can imagine a Roman flogging, you'd really be hurting from head to toe and maybe on the way to bleeding from head to toe. And so Paul and Silas in prison were in no great state. They were uh, really full of pain at a time when they found a way to praise and sing hymns to God in prison. So Paul had found something special. And that comes out in this letter as well. So, one more thing we need to say about, by way of setup, is why would Paul, where's he writing from, what's his situation, and why is he writing to the Philippians? And so, it seems that uh, the occasion is that he's in prison and he's received a kind of a care package from the Philippian church. Okay, so we call that occasion. Occasion, particularly, is important with Paul's letters. Why were they written just then? What was the, the spur? the prompt for that letter to be written. So Paul's received a care package, uh, financial support, maybe very practical things, food and clothing, from the Philippian church, and he's sending back a message of appreciation. But he doesn't just write thanks on a note. He uses the opportunity to um, build, build them up really pastorally. He's really looking for their welfare. He regards himself as still a bit of the ultimate overseer of that church. Now, people uh, dispute which imprisonment of Paul this is. So if he founded the church in the second missionary journey, that puts it at about 50 AD. Now, he's imprisoned, after he gets in trouble in Jerusalem towards the end of the book of Acts, he's imprisoned and he ends up in Caesarea. Remember, he's he's there for about two years and he gets called before uh, Herod Agrippa and he gets called before Festus and these other people. But his case is quite unresolved for a while. So that's 57 to 59 AD, and then finally he appeals to Caesar, and uh, I forget who it was, but they said, okay, there's an outcome, to Caesar you shall go, you know, (laughs) they're good at washing their hands, the Roman administration in Palestine, Paul's going to head off to Rome. So he gets to Rome about 60 AD, and he's imprisoned there for a couple of years, and that's where the story in Acts leaves us, uh, about 62 AD. So most people... Think of the prison epistles, the prison letters as being written in that last period when Paul's imprisoned in Rome. So I won't make a trivia question out of this. The prison letters, uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Okay, and so they all find Paul imprisoned. That's a, an interesting circumstance, okay? That affects the way that he writes. In, in Philippians, he's not sure if he's going to live or die. You read right through to the rest, right through to the end of chapter one. He's not sure what the outcome of his court case is going to be. Uh, he's, he thinks, well, I could live or I could die. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I, I can go either way. Late in the letter he's going to say, I've learned how to be content in all circumstances. So he really has learned how to hold his life with open palms and he's willing for God to take his life and he, he sees that as departing and being with Christ, which is far better. But he's also willing to continue to live if that's going to help the churches. And he suspects in the end of chapter 1 that that's going to be uh, still necessary for churches like the Philippians. He has the feeling that God still has work for him to do on their behalf. So he basically says, I'm quite prepared to die, and if, if, if I'm needed for you and people like you, I'm still willing to live. It takes unusual circumstances to put you in the place where... You have had to face the relinquishing of your life and you've come to peace about that. So it's fair to say for me, I've never really been in that circumstance. You know whether you have, whether you've ever been faced with the prospect of dying, with the real possibility of dying, so that you've had to say, okay, Lord, so this is how it is, all right. you know, I'm willing to live if you want me to live and I'm willing to die if you want me to die because only the believer can really confidently say, Uh, you know, I know God's got eternity in hand and I needn't fear death. But that wouldn't be our first reactions. I think it would take the prospect of actually dying to make us sort out that issue of death with God. Paul had. He'd already faced dying before this, probably, if it's the Roman imprisonment, and he has faced the real possibility that he might be condemned to death, and he really has dealt with it. And in fact, he kind of looks forward to it. Um, but if the Lord wants him to stay, to, to be pastor to the believers, he's willing to do that. So there's a release in the way that he writes this letter. There's a peace, there's a kind of a, a resolution, a really settled heart that reveals itself in every word that he says. I think we see that already in the passage that we've been looking at this morning. So let's just talk about a couple of simple things about Paul's prayer. First of all, how he prays and then what he prays. So we'll go to that first slide there, Joe, how he prays. Sometimes when I want to know whether I'm praying right, whether I'm doing it right, it's just what, what you do when you pray. So here's a couple of things that seem like no-brainers, but maybe they'll encourage you. The first thing Paul does in verse 3 is he thanks God. So if when you kneel down, sit down, stand up, walk around to pray... Eyes open, eyes shut, however you do it, writing, singing. If you thank God for something, you're doing something right. Okay? That's fairly straightforward, isn't it? So Paul thanks God. I thank God every time I remember you. I think that's kind of encouraging to know. Uh, Sometimes what I do if I can't think how to pray, I just have this little routine. I go, all right, I'm going to thank God for 10 things. Because, Because extemporaneous prayer is hard... If I'm struggling with that, I go, "Can I thank God for 10 things. That's just a concrete thing I can do. And I find then, if time permits, that leads me on to all kinds of other prayer because uh, it's hard to get to number 10 before you've begun talking to God about all sorts of stuff. And if that's what happens, it's served its purpose. So Paul gives thanks. The next thing that he does is asks for things. So if you thank God for things when you pray and then you ask for things... That's probably good praying. With the proviso that he's not asking for, you know, the iPhone 10 and stuff like that, he's really asking for things for other people. So perhaps unselfishness in, in asking might be one of the criteria of a good prayer. He really has a pastoral heart. You can see how much he cares for believers, particularly when he was the founder of the church. So he's got a particular burden for the churches that he started. And that makes a difference between Philippians and, say, Romans. Romans is this great doctrinal treatise because someone else founded the church and Paul has to establish his credentials with them. But Philippians, he doesn't need to establish his credentials. He's respected as the founder father and he cares for them as a founder father would. So he pleads for them. And what I notice the most is his attitude as he prays. Tying a bit into that attitude in prison of Paul and Silas. So he prays, for, uh, he prays in joy, he prays in confidence, and he really prays passionately. The joy comes from the fact that the Philippians have been on side from the first day. So he feels that they're true allies. Um, one of the um, things that I once was a little discouraged about for a short while was uh, in a previous church when a Vietnam vet... Um, said to a group of us, I half wondered whether he was mainly talking to me, but said to a group of us, basically, you have nothing to say to me until you've got blood on your hands. Um, Now, that's a little bit hard when you're in your late 20s because you can't sort of go to war and experience it in order to get authority in the pulpit. Sometimes you just have to speak with whatever authority you have. Um, But I think that reflects... The experience of a lot of returned soldiers that they've never experienced the kind of camaraderie, uh, anything as meaningful as wartime camaraderie in any other circumstance. I mean, how many? You've all heard the stories that they've affected my family back from World War II veteran days, that people who came back from war found life a bit colourless ever after because it had an intensity and a and a camaraderie and that. Kind of fighting side by side experience that nothing else in life ever really duplicated. Well, Paul feels something like that with the Philippians because not only have they kind of sat in church together or anything like that, they've really kind of fought and suffered together. Many of them have bled the way that he's bled, many of them have been imprisoned the way that he's been imprisoned, and so they have all counted the cost for following Christ. And they stand shoulder to shoulder in that sense. They all know that they've paid the price. They all know that they've had to decide when it's come to the crunch whether they're going to profess Christ or take the easy route. They've all gone the hard route. So they know they're true allies, true warriors side by side. That creates a special sort of bond that I suspect the returned soldier might say, you can't know what that's like unless you've experienced it. But you can experience it fighting a spiritual battle as well as a physical battle. Paul and the Philippians, they've all shed blood for the cause of Christ. He's confident for a different reason. Maybe the most famous verse from this chapter is verse 6, where it says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Right? Probably many of you have sort of hung on to that verse at different times. So the confidence here is not really in their character now. It's in the character of God and the fact that God finishes what he starts I remember when I was a student in America at the age of 20 or 21, they were fairly difficult years for me. And I can remember I was having a spiritual struggle and I confided in a friend, I don't know if I'm going to keep being a Christian. Like, I don't know if I can hang on. I don't know if I'm, you know, will I stick it out? Uh, I'm, I'm worried I might fall away, something like that. And I don't know why this guy said this, but he just said, yeah, but you won't. I don't know how he knew that. I still don't know how he knew that. Uh, but maybe there was just a whisker of a theological truth there that God's got a way of finishing what he starts. So it's funny. We can know that we're a kind of difficult Christians. A friend of mine from our old congregation, she, she calls herself a difficult Christian. It's not easy for her to be a Christian. She doesn't, she doesn't believe easily, battles with doubt, battles with all kinds of things. But she is a believer and you know when you are. You know when you're a Christian. So I'm kind of a difficult Christian. I have to kind of fight my way along. But uh, I just can look back to the day that God got a hold of my life, the days really, and know that he's never let go. So it's not our reliability that reassures us that we're going to see the Christian life through to the end. It's the character of God and, and his steadfastness. Interesting that that one great word from the Old Testament that describes God's covenant love, his hesed in Hebrew, Uh, It can be translated, his steadfast love. It's reliable. It's it's a basis for confidence. And because Paul has this pastoral relationship with the church, it's it's so passionate, the way that he prays for them. Uh, He can't get to them. right? One important thing about these circumstances is he is imprisoned. He cannot leave and go and see the Philippians. He can receive visitors. He can hear messages. He can't get there. And so I don't know, uh, any of you older parents who have children that live in different capital cities or maybe live overseas, or you're long separated from them for long periods, maybe you would feel a little bit of the longing of, boy, I would love to see them, I'd love to see the grandkids, I wish I could get to them more often. You know it's going to be six months, you know it's going to be 12 months. If they're overseas, it, maybe it's every two or three years. Uh, so you know... You can't get and see them, and it would be your dearest desire to do that. So Paul feels that way. This is what he'd love, is to see the Philippians. He doesn't even know if he's going to be on the gallows in three months. So he cannot get there. So his heart goes out, and he does what he can. He can't reach them. He can just pray for them. And so that brings us to this last little section, verses 9 to 11. And this is what he prays. So we've looked a little bit about how he prays. Um, this is what he prays for. This stuff is so deep, you've got to really think it through, haven't you? you know, when you read Paul's letters, like, your Bible reading plan might say you should read three chapters worth, but ideal would probably be about two verses, <laughs> if you're going to think them through adequately. <laughs> so this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And already you're going, oh, that's kind of deep. Ooh, do I understand it? don't know (laughs) it's interesting that love is at the core isn't it and so i'm understanding this little series that he has he has these little series in several letters that like one spiritual virtue leads to another one it's kind of a cascading effect that seems to be the way paul talks sometimes one virtue leads to another and the first virtue is love and then it has this cascade And I think of this cascade in terms of the will of God, how it relates to the will of God. That's been my little understanding understanding key for this this few verses. So I think love in the heart of the believer is what desires the will of God. Uh, It's that relationship with God, that love for God, that means that we care what God would want and that we wish it, that it begins to become... Uh, it begins to converge with our desires, or our, our desires begin, begin to converge with the will of God. It's interesting when Jesus' disciples said, teach us how to pray, you know, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray, so can you teach us how to pray? Obviously, they felt that they hadn't quite mastered it yet themselves. And the first thing Jesus said was, well, our Father in heaven, uh, may your name be glorified. I try to get away from hallowed, because people don't talk like that anymore, except at Halloween. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So after glorifying God, the first thing that comes in the prayer that Jesus teaches is to seek the will of God. So that's why I think it's central in prayer. Prayer is about a quest for the will of God. So love wants it. Love for God wants the will of God. And then knowledge and depth of insight are two wisdom words that tell me that wisdom discerns the will of God. It begins to understand the will of God, gets clarity on that. Now, I studied these two words, where they come from. Um, The first of them uh, turns up in a phrase in the Greek Old Testament for the knowledge of God in the book of Hosea. So Hosea says to Israel, what have you really lost? You've lost the knowledge of God. It's his main accusation of Israel, the prophet Hosea. Isaiah chapter 4, 1, 6, 1, places like that. And in the Greek, that comes out with this same word, epignosis, the knowledge of God. So it's not just a sort of an intellectual thing. Uh, There's a relational aspect to this knowledge of God. It's not just kind of um, mastery of facts and information. And then the other word that he uses is actually nowhere else in the New Testament, this word insight. Only the once in the New Testament But it's all through the book of proverbs it's almost nowhere else in our whole bible but it's all through the book of proverbs in the greek and it's one of the words uh, translated for a hebrew word that means knowledge of god as well so both of these words are wisdom words paul's harking back to the wisdom books of the old testament but they're also uh, words that express uh, not just a mental process but a relational interaction with god so this love might want to do the will of God, but it's got to understand what that will is. It's got to have some perception of it. So the whole practical section of the book of Romans, starting in chapter 12, begins you know, um, with the renewing of the mind that you may discern what the will of God is, what are the things that matter. And very similar phrasing turns up in verse 10. You may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. So discerning what is best... What counts? What what matters? What's really valuable when other things turn out to be trivial? The the wisdom that comes with growing love for God can tell the difference. You know we won't fritter away our lives on on trivial stuff. It's easy to do on devices, isn't it? You know you find yourself kind of multitasking. I'll say the things I do do right, so to avoid hypocrisy. So you've got something on the TV, and you're casually interacting with your family and you're scanning your device, and almost nothing that you're doing is of any consequence, you know? Scanning your device for, you know, well, maybe, I don't know if it's cat videos, maybe it's a step up from cat videos. Watching TV with one eye, watching a device with the other, your spouse is letting you know that you're not paying her much attention or him much (laughs) attention. Uh, So we've got endless access to trivia now. It's, It's about time that we showed a bit of insight as to kind of, Every minute's valuable. Every hour's val- valuable. Now, relaxing is valuable. Pace of life can get to us. So, actually, resting—that is valuable. But whether we're doing it, if we're trying to watch TV and, and scan the web simultaneously, I don't know. Is that rest? I'm not so sure. Maybe rest includes resting the mind as well as the body. So, people of God, I think, have entitlement to rest hard. And then, when we work, we work hard, and all the time relating hard because people matter. Um, but to tell the difference between the things that matter and the things that don't, the things that have consequence and the things that don't, um, the things that are beneficial and the things that are trivial as well as negative. And then what I want to call goodness does the will of God, implements it, looking at verse 11. Uh, Paul talks about the fruit of righteousness. I'm even a bit reluctant to use righteousness. I... I like us as Christians to just check whether we're using words that nobody else uses and and try and limit how much we do that. So the last time I can remember the word righteous coming up in in the outside world is where the turtle who helps Nemo find his way to the Australian East Coast in Finding Nemo (laughs) says, Righteous! That's been about 15 years and since then I don't think I've ever heard the word righteous in public discourse. So... I'm going to call it goodness, but in your Bibles, it will say righteousness. It's that goodness of heart, that uprightness that God is building in the believer's heart that wants to do the will of God, that that implements it, that puts into practice. I think Paul's talking about practical fruits of righteousness, things you actually do in real life uh, that reflect the fact that you've got a changed heart, a heart in relationship with God. So we want to want the will of God. We want to know what in the world the will of God is, particularly in our circumstances our particular situation and then we want to actually put it into practice now with paul the goal is always the glory of god Uh, christ is how that is achieved and god is the goal so if it's prayer for paul he says we pray through christ we pray to the father if it's the outcome of our lives and what they're supposed to produce uh, we bring glory to god but we can only do it in Christ. So Christ is the means, and the Father is the goal. I think that reflects the way Paul speaks about these things. So I just want to help us all to think about one thing, and that is about how prayer works. And uh, it's easy to oversimplify here. I can only talk about kind of one element of it. It's influenced by the Lord's Prayer, as I said, and it's also influenced by what I've been seeing in Psalms and Job and other places. It's fascinating that in so many lament psalms, you know, the sad ones, the complaining ones, the person starts out sounding very lost, very confused, you know. Um, There's the one psalm that starts out praising the Lord for being drawn out of the miry pit, you know, the, the, the slippery, muddy pit. But many of the psalms, the psalmist is still in it when he begins to speak. So it sounds very lost and very disorientated. And it's funny in how many of those psalms, by the end, the psalmist's attitude has completely changed, but not the circumstances. It's just amazing how many of those lament psalms are like that. There's no overt indication that anything has changed, and in some cases, it's pretty clear it hasn't, because the psalmist says, I will yet praise you. I will yet praise him for the help that he's going to give. It's coming. But actually, the circumstance the implication seems to be is no different from what it was. So the only thing that changes in many of these lament psalms is the psalmist's attitude, just that one thing. And yet the change in attitude, the change in perspective seems to have changed so much. Psalm 73, you might remember, starts out, the psalmist is having a struggle about, why do bad people seem to get away with it and do so well? And then, you know... Those of us who are trying to do the right thing, it doesn't seem to get us anywhere. Where's the justice in that? And the psalmist says about verse 18, oh, it was only when I went into the temple that I, that I understood, you know, the end, what, what happens in the future and how things are sorted out. I didn't understand until I came before the Lord in the temple. And then he admits in the next verses, well, I was just like an animal before you. I was so ignorant. I was so... I just didn't see anything right. I, mentally, I was... Um, just walking in a cloud. I didn't see what was true. So that's one of those psalms where the psalmist sees things afresh. Circumstances haven't changed. The wicked are still prospering and good people are still copying it. But now he can see what's really true, having encountered God. Psalm 22 is very similar. The whole book of Job works on the same principle, that uh, Job cannot see where justice lies and how God is dealing with him and it's an encounter with God that changes his perspective even though he's still sick and suffering. So I think prayer involves this process of an encounter with God and a change of attitude. And I'm not so much drawing this from within our passages as from the, the, this broader context. So often we arrive in the presence of God Knowing what our will is, but not very clear on what God's will is. We know what we want, and we we might express that in words. We come with requests. It's the easiest thing to do in prayer is ask for stuff, right? Uh, When you forget to worship, when you forget to give thanks, when you forget to maybe meditate on the truths of God or whatever, the one thing you remember to do in prayer is ask for stuff. (laughs) So sometimes we come and that's the, the bulk and body of our prayer. Not saying, you know, material things or unrighteous things necessarily but just with requests we come with our will we come clear on what we want and god being a relational god actually kind of meets us in this and you see this in some of these psalms Uh, encounters us interacts with us and the ultimate goal seems to be that god is helping us to understand what his will might be that we're gaining that knowledge and insight that Paul talked about. We're getting some clarity on God's perspective on the situation and that our will is coming into conformity with his. So perhaps one of the goals of prayer, and it's a rich and complex thing, is that we bring our will and bring it into encounter and submission to the will of God. And I, I just suspect on the back of those psalms and those other parts of Scripture that encountering, encountering God and coming to know his will will totally change the way we see things. Lots of things about our lives can't easily be changed. Uh, lots of sufferings and burden, burdens that people carry are long-term things. We feel helpless when we're talking to them because we know we can't change them. That they're bereaved or the relationship's broken down or it's a long-term health struggle or whatever it is. So many of these things that life throws at us are not over in a blink, they are just long-term burdens that people have to carry. And when we're trying to encourage them, sometimes we just go, what am I going to say to that? They've lost a child, what can I possibly say? So circumstances like that don't change, and the grief does not go quickly, and and the burden from those things can be lifelong. The thing that can change is just the way that we see things. That's the most changeable thing about those situations, is our perspective and how we're seeing things. Um, God doesn't tell Job, no, look, all your suffering doesn't matter. You know, pain's not a real thing. You know, go, go all Zen and you'll realize that. Um, Job's pain's very real. Job's suffering's very real. He doesn't know, but actually it matters quite a lot because it's, there's, you know, heavenly stakes on, uh, at stake. Stakes at stake. But it's really the change in us that can really change how we experience our circumstances. And so I think prayer is partly to achieve that. It's partly to bring us into proximity to God so we begin to perceive what His will in a situation is. Um, We need His grace to even teach us how to do that, to even teach us how to pray, don't we? So let me pray now, and then we're going to finish our service by um, celebrating communion together. Well, Lord, it's only, as we said, it's only your word that gives us confidence to even talk about this sometimes. Uh, We know that we don't do these things very well. We don't pray very well. But prayer is a, a thing of hope, Lord. We keep praying because we continue to believe that you listen and that you change. Change us, not yourself. So, Lord, come and meet us individually. You know where each one is at. You know our spiritual condition. You know our blind spots. You know... Uh, our sins and failures you know what it is we need to know right now and so lord bring us into closer encounter with yourself bring us into a clearer understanding of your will uh, a real sincere desire to see it done and see it lived and then show us what's needed from us practically even on a monday morning uh, and into the 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 week of real life that we're going to live show us how we can Help bring about your will on earth just as it's done in heaven. Amen.